0: A phone call triggered by a missing employee and what seemed to be an out-of-order phone line led to the gruesome discovery of sheep Mike Lewis and his wife Sue. They'd been shot in their home. Their four-year-old daughter was left fending for herself, her three-year-old brother, and their puppy, while their parents' bodies decomposed nearby. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Please forgive me for my scratchy voice today. I have had... A terrible cold the last couple of weeks. But I've been excited to get this story to you. So here we go. Today, we're headed to Australia. More precisely, Derilderie, a place with country charm and a very small population. 922, according to the 2021 census. If Geraldry was famous for anything besides sheep, it would be that the Kelly Gang, a group of outlaws who terrorized the northeastern district of Victoria in the late 1800s, paid an explosive visit to this place. They robbed the bank, taking more than 30 residents hostage after locking the local police inside their own cell. After which, Ned Kelly, the leader of the outlaws, tried to get the editor of the local newspaper to print his manifesto in which he attempted to justify his murderous actions. According to the manifesto, the outlaw had many reasons for doing what he did, and to be honest, some of them were a lot better than the reasons for the murder in today's episode. Like I said, Geraldry, Australia is tiny, a small farming town out in the middle of nowhere. In 1978, Mick and Susan Lewis lived there on a secluded homestead with their two children. Mick, the head of the household, was a sheep shearer, a hard worker who drank as hard as he worked and often gambled away his earnings. He seemed to be a better sheep shearer and a thief than he was a husband or citizen, having been arrested multiple times for sheep theft and stumbling home late at night after spending or losing money at his favorite local pub. While Mick was known as one of the best sheep shearers in the district, having worked with them since he was a young teen, his wife, also a local, was known for her gardening and homesteading skills. They had both grown up country tough, having had to work hard for everything they had. They rented a small home in Summerfield Station, paying $15 a week in rent to their landlord, a woman who lived about a kilometer away. In 1978, that was a hell of a deal, but there was a bit more to it. Part of the agreement was that Mick would help with different chores and tractor work his landlord might need. Yep, Mick did work hard but he also played hard. He would start drinking while at work, maybe half a dozen beers, then when finished, have another half dozen. Then he'd head to his favorite pub to continue drinking and gamble on poker or horse racing. Sue grew to have little patience for mixed drinking. She would often show up at the pub to insist he come home, much to the amusement of his drinking friends. Sometimes she would sit outside in the car waiting for him to finish what he always said was his last beer. That so-called last beer could take an hour or more to drink and Sue would be boiling with anger by the time Mick finally removed his lips from the bottle. On one occasion, he arrived home drunk to be met by the fury that had been building in Sue for hours. She let him have a piece of her mind. In return, he pointed a hunting rifle at his suddenly terrified wife who ran from the house with their baby girl. Mother and daughter spent a miserable night in their car, Like a sheep who had mistaken a cactus for a cozy pillow, a much more sober and apologetic Mick approached Sue the next morning full of remorse. She agreed to return to the house only once Mick promised to get rid of his gun, which he did. Fast forward a few years to September of 1987. Sue and Mick now had two children, a two-year-old little boy who looked just like Mick, who walked like his father, talked like him, and even had the nickname Little Mick, even though his given name was Mark. And they had their daughter, Tanya, who was four and looked just like her mother. On Friday, September 29th, their spirits were high. They were heading into a long weekend. Sue took the kids to visit their grandparents in Daniloquin. By the time Mick arrived home after his long workday, Sue and the kids had already eaten dinner, and it was nearing time to go home. As the family left her parents' house, driving off together, Sue waved and called out her window to tell her parents that she'd see them again on Monday night, but that was the last time they'd see Mick and Sue alive. When the always dependable Mick didn't show up for work when scheduled the following Tuesday morning, his boss began checking in with his friends, shearers like him. They had to keep in touch with each other because sometimes work would be called off. This would happen from time to time when the sheep were too wet to be sheared. As Mick's boss spoke to his friends, he found out that one of them had been trying to reach Mick the whole weekend and couldn't get him to answer the phone. So the boss called the homestead. Getting no answer, he called the local telephone exchange. Yes, in 1978, they still had a switchboard operator. Michael Lewis's telephone line went through the Daniloquin Exchange, which was a shared line. This meant there was a specific ring signal for the Summerfield homestead. The exchange supervisor rang the special signal for the house several times that morning. And finally, the very young voice of four-year-old Tanya Lewis came on the line. "'Hello?' Tanya said. "'Hello, is your mommy at home?' "'Yes, she is,' Tanya replied, "'but she's asleep.' "'Well, is Daddy there?' "'Yeah,' But he's asleep too. He's sleeping on the kitchen floor. Oh, could you go wake Mommy up for me and tell her to come to the phone? I need to tell her something. Can you do that for me? No, no, I don't like Mommy anymore because Mommy's turning black. This exchange sent alarm bells through the operator's head. The police were called and immediately made their way to the homestead. Once there, they found Mick in the kitchen. He was dead but he didn't look like he'd been dead for very long. They walked through another door to the living room, where the two children were huddled up next to each other, looking at the officers. The police asked, Where's Mommy? The children pointed to a bedroom. Inside, Susan was laying in bed, very black and almost unrecognizable due to decomposition. The officers immediately noticed the marked difference in the state of the bodies, which told them this was a terrible domestic dispute gone wrong. They believed Mick had killed his wife a couple days before, maybe by strangulation or poisoning, and then took his own life by overdosing or using some fast-acting poison or something else from the kitchen where he'd been found. At first glance, other than the bodies, there was no evidence of a crime in the house. No guns, no drugs, no poison that could be found. Nothing. There was a little bit of blood underneath Mick's head as he lay in the kitchen. It seemed like he might have hit his head on the handle of the cupboard door, right above where his head lay. There didn't appear to be any blood in the bedroom either. Homicide detectives were called in from Sydney and joined the local detectives. Their first impression was domestic violence as well, but they had to wonder, why would they leave the children alone in the house? Who knows what could have happened to them? Why would Mick, who by all accounts loved and cherished his children, leave them to starve? They were two and four years old, and the closest home was more than half a mile away. If they could even find their way there, they'd still have to make it past the snakes and other creepy crawlies in the Australian outback. There was some evidence in the early stages that led officers to believe that the kids had been there for a while. There were dirty diapers, as well as what would normally go inside diapers— on the floor in several different places. The refrigerator was left open, but there was very little food for the kids to eat inside. There were broken biscuits on the floor and even a partially open can of dog food. It appeared that the kids were so hungry they tried to open the dog food to eat it, or maybe to feed the puppy. They wondered why Mick would leave his children alive for a few days and have the time to simmer down before he decided to take his own life. The evidence in and around the house led investigators to believe that the kids had gone to their father at some point, trying to get his help, and later to their mother. It was also deemed likely that one or both of the children slept with their dead mother at some point. It had dropped to almost freezing over the weekend, and the nights were the coldest. They had snuggled up next to her, looking for warmth. As the police tried to remove the children from the house, little Mick began crying for his mother. Tanya only kept him calm by placing their pet puppy into his arms and leading him to the police car. They didn't want the children to be taken far from the homestead because, at the time, they were the only link between their dead parents and what had happened to them. The children would be interviewed by the police, but they were too young to glean any useful information from. The kids couldn't say what day or time their parents died, and they couldn't say anything about anyone, Strangers or not, having come into the house. Back at the crime scene, it was noted that Mick had fallen to the floor with food in his mouth. The oven was open and contained two plates. On one was an omelet and bacon, and on the other, only bacon. It appeared he was cooking breakfast and making a second omelet when something violent occurred. There were upturned frying pans and a clock had been unplugged. It was one of those old-fashioned clocks where the numbers flip down when the time changes. Granted, it didn't give an a.m. or p.m., but if the clock got unplugged by Mick's body as it fell, investigators would have a pretty good idea of the time of his death. Unfortunately, the other possibility was that one of the kids unplugged it at some point over the weekend, which wasn't helpful at all. Mick's own watch looked like it had been shoved up his arm and broken, At first, police believed that this had happened in the throes of death, but then they saw that one of his pockets had been turned inside out. That was strange. They weren't able to use a rectal thermometer to determine rigor mortis because both bodies had been dead for too long. Sue was far too decomposed, and it looked like Mick had been dead longer than 24 hours, so the only other option was to fix the time of death by examining newborn insect larvae on their bodies. As the forensic examiners collected evidence, they too were puzzled as to why Sue's body was in such an advanced state of decomposition. It was cold, and it had only been a couple days since she was last seen alive. But it wasn't very long before he had a theory as to why she was in the state she was in. When he touched the bed, he realized it was warm. She had been lying under a single electric blanket set on the highest setting. The body may have been under that blanket for as long as three days. Her body had much more fly larvae on it than Mix did. The cold temperature, almost freezing, had kept flies off him longer than it had Sue. The correct time of death was terribly important, and it would be weeks before tests could be completed that would set the correct time of death. In the meantime, the detectives began to inspect the house from top to bottom. They photographed the death scenes from every angle and took fingerprints from every flat, clean surface. As the fingerprint investigator was dusting the refrigerator, he thought he found bloody fingerprints. They appeared to be tiny prints from just the tips of fingers, but when he dropped to his knees, he realized the fingerprints were those of another substance, a red juice, and the prints were tiny, probably belonging to the children. There were no discernible traces of blood in the bedroom, but a few bloody handprints marked hallways outside the bedroom door and in the hallway leading from Mick's body to Sue's. These smears were from the children, and most of the fingerprints were eliminated quickly, but there were a couple prints that hadn't been identified. However, it was believed they belonged to Sue. Her body was too decomposed to collect a proper fingerprint. The evidence still pointed toward domestic tragedy, but they still hadn't figured out how Mick or Sue had died. One theory was that Sue had died in her sleep, maybe having overdosed. The mirage of domestic violence would shatter when the undertakers arrived to transport Sue and Mick's lifeless bodies. The truth unfolded quietly as the blankets were pulled back from Sue's body and a small metallic object clinked to the floor, a twenty two cartridge. Mick's body made its way to a nearby morgue where the horrible job of identification awaited grieving parents. Sue was identified by the rings on her fingers, while Mick's father was asked to identify his son's body. Mick's brother, hovering on the outskirts, watched on, as in just a few seconds' time, his father seemed to age ten years. He had to be held up as he exited the cold clinical room, after confirming Mick's identity. In the sterile environment of post-mortem examination, facts emerged. X-rays revealed the presence of 22 caliber bullets in both Sue and Mick's skulls. Sue's held three metal fragments, but only two tiny entry wounds marked her demise. Mick's fate painted a similar grim picture, a bullet entering beneath his right ear, traversing his brain and settling on the inner wall of the left side of his skull. Police hadn't found a gun on the property, so the detectives retraced their steps back to the crime scene, scouring for a weapon, searching under beds and in cupboards for any shred of evidence. What they found was a phone book, with the back page being used to store contacts. There were handwritten names and phone numbers. It became a focal point as Sue and Mick's connections to farmers, doctors, and friends were scrutinized for potential leads. Police took plaster casts of some of the deep tire tracks that lay in the dirt in front of the house. They compared them to family and friends close to Sue and Mick. They studied the post-mortem reports to try to fix the angle of the shot that had killed Mick and tried to pinpoint the killer's position in the kitchen by walking backwards from Mick's body. As an officer did this, he walked backwards from Mick's body. As the officer did so, he backed into the screen door. When he turned to look at the door, he noticed a small hole. It was exactly the size that a 22 caliber bullet would fit through. The wires from the screen were pushed inward, indicating that the shot was fired from outside the kitchen. The investigators took a piece of string, holding it at the height where the bullet would have struck Mick's head as he stood by the stove. Then they thread the string through the hole in the fly screen. Walking outside and trying to keep the string in a straight line, They eventually came to an old wooden tank stand. It seemed that a rifle had to be resting against the tank stand to get the right angle of shot. One of the officers circled the spot and declared that a spent bullet casing could lie somewhere within that circle. So everyone got down on their knees and dug around through the grass. After about 20 minutes, they found what they were looking for. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed... Also, 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The newly found shell casing was compared to the one found in Sue's bed and it was determined that they had come from the same weapon. The police worked their way outwards from Mick and Sue's house, asking neighbors and landholders if they had seen anything in the days before the murders. Two local girls said they saw Sue driving into town on Saturday morning, and the couple's landlady on the adjoining farm believed she saw Mick on Saturday afternoon. I'm telling you right now that they were both mistaken. Witness testimony is often wrong. Not intentionally, But because our memories are flawed. Neither the girls or the landlady saw Mick or Sue that day. But at this point, the time of death hadn't been determined. However, the investigation team thought they had enough evidence to reconstruct the murders. Picture this Mick, alone in the kitchen, sizzling bacon on the stove, and possibly drunkenly crafting an omelet. One had already been cooked and left in the oven to stay warm. Meanwhile, Sue and the children peacefully slept in their beds. When under the cloak of darkness, a figure approached the house, found a steady perch for his gun, and took deadly aim. The gunshot echoed as Mick, still clutching his frying pan, crumpled to the ground, yanking the electric clock poured from the wall in his descent. As Mick lay dying on the floor, the killer walked into the kitchen, through the living room, to the bedroom where he found Sue asleep. He shot her in the head. She instinctively or subconsciously sat up, and he shot her again. She fell back dead, and the killer returned to the kitchen, searching Mick's body for money. He had been paid $200 that Friday, but the money was nowhere to be found in the house. The next step was for the investigating team to figure out what brand of twenty-two caliber rifle had been used in the murder. The ballistics team went to work on the evidence identifying the firearm using bullet fragments taken from the body and distinct marks known as lands and grooves. These are scratches made as the bullet moves through the barrel. In this case, it was determined that there were eight lands and grooves with a left twist. Listen, when it comes to ballistics, I'm like one of those new blank target sheets. No hits, just a lot of empty space. I will never understand ballistics, but according to the ballistics expert, this is important because those eight lands and grooves with the left twist could specify exactly which weapon was used. The spotlight now shone on an Australian-made fieldman rifle. A very rare rifle. Only 2,000 were ever produced. The hunt for the elusive killer narrowed as the detectives combed through licenses, names, and locations associated with that particular firearm. It was a task that was painstaking and time-consuming. In the beginning, police asked locals to bring their .22s in to show them to the police. But apparently, in that area, twenty-twos were as common as kangaroos. Everybody had one. So police narrowed the search down to the fieldman brand. Obviously, they were asking people to come in and show their guns, so what were the chances that the killer would bring his gun in to show the police? My guess is very low. While some officers were working on that job, others were working on a clue they had come across. They'd found out that a final phone call was made from Sue and Mick's house at 11:10 p.m. on Saturday night. Police didn't question that for quite a while, but then other evidence came forward that no one could say with absolute certainty that they had seen Mick and Sue on Saturday. Their phone had gone unanswered that day, and there was no proof anywhere that they had left their house. They had to wonder if the timing on the phone call was correct. When they brought it to the switchboard operator, they found out that the person who wrote that down had actually worked Friday night, not Saturday. They had been a day off. Now investigators believe that the couple were killed on Friday night, and when the police finally got the report on the insect larva analysis, it also indicated Friday night as the time of death. This meant that four days had gone by before the bodies were found. Four days, two small children and their puppy were trapped inside that home with their decomposing parents. Given that police still didn't have much to go on, at least now they had a more specific time frame. They decided to ask for assistance from the public. Of course, the concern was that asking for the public's help would produce a lot of red herrings. People wanted to help, and their hearts were in the right place, But quite often, tip lines and the like lead police on wild goose chases. This particular tip line produced what was initially deemed to be yet another goose for the chasing. The police heard repeated stories about Mick purposely wrecking his car to collect an insurance payout. Sue's parents told police that the couple was expecting a $5,000 payout. If this was true and Mick had collected that money, detectives wondered whether robbery could be the motive for the murders. We have to remember that Mick's pocket had been turned inside out. According to Sue's parents, there was a bridge across the creek not far from the homestead. Mick supposedly caused his car to roll over an embankment there. He jumped out just before the car left the road. Of course, the car was totaled. The story was that Mick called the insurance agent to claim the insurance, but it had been a while since that had happened. Mick's insurance agent was a man named John Fairley. His name had been on the telephone list that investigators had pulled from the phone book at Sue and Mick's house. John Fairley had already been interviewed by police and gave them an alibi for Saturday night. He was a painter by trade who lived with his wife and kids, but worked part-time as an insurance agent. When interviewed the first time, he told police that he knew who Mick was, but that was all. According to other sources, this was a lie. With the updated timeline, police needed to talk to John about Friday night. They also wanted to know which insurance company he worked for. John had given the police the name of an insurance company, but when they checked, he wasn't an employee there. They confronted him, and he apologized, saying that he had accidentally given them the name of a company he used to work for and that he works for a new one now. But that didn't change the fact that Mick didn't have insurance through John's company. The police checked with Fairley's insurance broker and found that Indeed, there was no policy issued to Mick. The thing was, friends and family insisted that Mick had paid for insurance. One of his friends distinctly remembered Mick stopping to pick up a money order to send to John. Not once, but twice money was sent this way. The police were able to check with the post office to find that money was indeed sent between Mick and John. But once again, there was no record of having that insurance policy for Mick. So what was that money for? After hearing this, the detectives headed to Mick's favorite local pub. They interviewed one of the bartenders, who confirmed that Mick and John knew each other fairly well. They were friendly, but that had recently changed. The bartender told detectives that Mick had confided in her that he had received a death threat from John. According to the bartender, Mick was very angry. He had paid for insurance, and his car was totaled, but no money had come from the insurance company. According to Mick, John was saying that he hadn't paid for insurance, and if Mick continued to raise hell about it, John would kill him. After hearing this, the detectives decided to interview John again. They asked him if he knew anything about Mick wrecking his car, and again asked him if John had sold him any insurance. John continued to deny knowledge of anything to do with Mick. He insisted that he barely knew the guy. The investigators couldn't understand why he was telling these little lies. The next step in the investigation was go to a local car junkyard where Mick's totaled car had been towed. There, the owner told police that a strange request had come in from an auto insurance assessor. The man said that whatever the scrapped car was worth, the check should be sent to Mick. When asked who the assessor was, the owner revealed that the man had left his business card, and the name on the card was John Fairley. When John was asked about this, he denied having ever been there. The police knew better. They were holding his business card in their back pockets. Their sights were now 100% on John Fairley. They started asking his friends and family if he had access to a Fieldman brand rifle. A friend of John's was interviewed and gave the police some spent cartridges. He couldn't give them the gun because he had lent it to John. The cartridges were a perfect match for those found at the murders. It was time to arrest John Fairley. He was taken from his painting job to the police station in Victoria, where he admitted to knowing Mick and having been at the homestead at least once in his lifetime. He denied having anything to do with the murder and borrowing a Fieldman brand rifle, but one by one, the police presented him with the facts and told him how the bullets used in the murder matched the gun he had in his possession. John couldn't avoid the truth any longer. He broke down and confessed. He told the police that years earlier, Mick paid for insurance through John. He got in an accident and rang John for a claim. John had taken Mick's money earlier that year, but pocketed it instead of arranging for insurance. He told Mick that his insurance was out of date, that there was no insurance on the vehicle at all, and unfortunately, Mick would have to sue the other driver, which Mick did. He was granted $100 a month for several months. But the insurance company only paid one month's worth, and Mick was upset. He hated the insurance company, and he hated that he had paid $300 for an insurance policy and only got $100 in return, along with a lot of headaches. He wanted justice, so he took another policy with John Fairley. Once again, John pocketed the money, keeping the premium for himself. He didn't know that Mick was up to no good, and after Mick purposely totaled the car john realized he was in a pretty big bit of trouble because he hadn't insured the vehicle like he said he had he told mick he had insured it for five thousand dollars but he hadn't actually done it for months he tried to stall mick who was fairly forceful and didn't let up nearly every day mick reached out to john and demanded the five thousand dollars be paid mick told john he needed a new car John kept trying to figure out ways to stall, and at the end, he even tried unsuccessfully to borrow money to pay Mick what he owed him, but he was unsuccessful. He was cornered. He could only see one way to avoid being exposed as a petty thief. He told the police that one night, he'd seen Mick's car outside the local bar. He waited until Mick left and followed him home. Then he parked down the road so his car wouldn't be seen and walked to Mick's house. He had been watching from outside. He knew the property was isolated enough that there wouldn't be any neighbors who would see him lurking around the property that night. In time, he decided that that was the time and place to do what he'd been thinking about for quite some time. He had borrowed his friend's gun for a reason. He saw that Sue was in bed and Mick was in the kitchen preparing bacon and eggs. He stood, leaning against the tank stand and fired through the screen door killing Mick instantly with one shot to the back of the head. He walked through the rest of the house, past the children who were sleeping in another room, and shot Sue while she lay sleeping in her bed. He couldn't say for sure whether the children were there or not. He left, not caring. They may have starved, they may have frozen, but he didn't care. He had shot a mother and father just because he didn't want to get caught stealing a few hundred dollars. I can't help but think about what if John had mustered the courage to confess his theft to Mick? Would Mick, a former sheep thief with his own skeletons, have extended forgiveness and struck some type of deal with John? Maybe Mick's checkered past would have swayed him toward forgiveness and understanding, but John was far too selfish to consider that possibility. He killed Mick because he didn't want to get caught stealing, then killed Sue because he knew Sue would likely have pointed to him as a suspect. Ultimately, John pled guilty and was sentenced to two terms of life imprisonment. He was released on parole after serving only nine years. That's right, nine years. Make and Sue's children wouldn't have even graduated high school by the time their parents' killer was released. I'm not sure that justice was served here. I'd love to know your thoughts on that. Come share your thoughts with me on Facebook, Instagram, or Patreon. Those are the sites where I will share photos that go with this case too. If you look at your episode description, you will find links to all those social media sites. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking a moment to give it a nice rating and review. Honestly, you don't have to craft a fancy review. Just say hi, because anything you write helps. Speaking of helping, I'd like to thank two brand new Patreon members. Thank you so much, Lori C. and Heather C., you guys are the best. I truly appreciate your support. And to all of you still listening, I wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds. Take care.